Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm John Sacalariatis, the host of the channel. On the show today, we are pleased to have Dr. Joe Marie Burt. Dr. Burt is an associate professor of political science at the Shar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, where she has published widely on political violence, human rights, and transitional justice in Peru, Guatemala, and El Salvador. She is also a senior fellow at the Washington Office on Latin America, a research and advocacy organization that works on human rights, democracy, and social and economic justice in, you guessed it, Latin America. We are excited to have Dr. Burt in the show today to talk about a somewhat new but still very relevant book, Political Violence and the Authoritarian, Authoritarian State in Peru, Silencing Civil Society. Dr. Burt, welcome to the show. Hi, John. It's really nice to be here with you. Great. So, Dr. Burt, this is a book about a brutal civil conflict that took place in Peru in the 1980s and 1990s why and how state and non-state actors exercise political violence and how that violence would come to shape political culture and grew thereafter. We have a lot to cover, and it's a really great book that I'm excited to talk to you about. But since I suspect that the average listener will not be super familiar with the subject matter, I'd love if you could start us off by giving a brief overview of what happened and what your book is about. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Um, So... Rather than going to into sort of a deep historical dive, I'll start with 1980, uh, when the conflict begins. Uh, Peru had endured a 12-year military government and was holding elections in May of 1980 um, for uh, a new president and a new Congress. They had just written a new, very democratic constitution that was signed in 1979. And on the very day that the majority of Peruvians went to cast their ballots, um, this previously unknown organization uh, went into uh, a voting bo- a voting location and burned the voting ballots in a remote Andean town called Chuschi in Ayacucho, high up in the Andes Mountains. Um. Several months later, uh, in downtown Lima, uh, dead dogs were found hung from lampposts 
um, with signs that said something like, death to the running dogs of capitalism, death to Deng Xiaoping. Um, and slowly, right, Peruvians get to begin to understand that there is this movement in Ayacucho based primarily at the university that calls itself the Peruvian Communist Party in the shining path of Jose Carlos Mariategui, who is a very well-known leftist Marxist thinker in Peru that pretty much all the left-wing organizations feel an inspiration from. Um, they have, with that May, that May 1980 burning of the ballots, launch what they call the prolonged popular war. They are essentially a Marxist-Leninist Maoist organization, but principally Maoist. They believe that Peru is a feudal society. Peru, I mean, there are a lot of rural peasants still living in Peru who live in very difficult conditions. Uh, the leader of Shining Path, Abimael Guzman, who recently passed away, um, went to China during the Gang of Four purges and was inspired by the Gang of Four, by this idea of permanent revolution. And when Deng Xiaoping came to power in China and the purge of Mao and Maoism began uh, for Guzman, that was a betrayal of the revolution. So he, he and his group, that, which came to be known colloquially as The Shining Path, uh, were the last true bearers of revolution in the world, not just in Peru or even Latin America, in the world. And he saw himself, he proclaimed himself as the fourth sword of Marxist, Leninist, Maoist thought. And the fourth being Gonzalo thought his nom de guerre was President Gonzalo. So, um, you know, per, as I said, Peruvians were going to the the, the ballot box voting, um, uh, and, and the left had a very impressive showing the legal left, the, people, the, the parties that agreed to participate in elections, the centrist opera party, which was a, more of a populist party, but also, you know, a, appealing to, you know, the popular sectors uh, also, uh, you know, started to grow in its uh, popular appeal at this time. Um, but the, essentially the, 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 the actions of the Shining Path were... I would say overall not taken very seriously at the beginning. I mean, really people thought, even the left thought of these guys up in the remote rural uh, Andes as country bumpkins, right? Didn't take their ideology very seriously. Didn't take their actions very seriously. The government viewed it as a foreign plot meant to destabilize the new democratic government, were very reluctant to send in the military because the president, who'd just been elected into office, had himself been deposed by the military um, in 1968, right? Um, so there was a lot of just misunderstanding, lack of uh, uh, realizing how serious this threat actually was going to turn out to be. Um, so the initial state response was, you know, first ignore and then go in and repress everybody. So there's a lot of indiscriminate violence. And rather than uh, uh, stamp out the Shining Path, this fueled, right, the flames of their movement and allowed them to grow and expand. And by the end of the 80s, the Shining Path had declared that they were going to refocus on the cities and they were going to push into the cities because that was like the final, right, 
uh, strategy, the final phase of their revolutionary war towards taking state power. Um, and in this context, you begin to see, you know, car bombs in Lima, selective assassinations. They really begin targeting not just, you know, representatives of the government or of the state, police, you know, government ministers, uh, et cetera, but also people they viewed from sort of middle working and lower classes as um, their enemies. So trade unionists, community organizers, peasant federation leaders, um, also are targeted by Shining Path relatively uh, uh, systematically. Um, so uh, the the violence really does expand to the point that, you know, in 1992, I, remember I was in graduate school at this time, the U.S. Congress held a, a hearing um, at which the then uh, Assistant Secretary of State for Hemispheric Affairs, Bernard Arnson, uh, was convening experts to talk about what the United States response should be to the real possible, what they viewed at the time as the real possibility that Shining Path could take power in Peru. Um, uh, in the end, right, in September of 1992, Abimel Guzman and several other top leaders of the organization were arrested. Uh, and because it was such a vertical organization, which was for all those years, key to its relative success in growing, expanding, and protecting its leadership. But once they captured the top leaders, within a matter of less than a year or two, really, the organization uh, uh, became really less than relevant. Um, uh, and, you know, so in the end, um, uh, the, the, the movement... Uh, you know, he's, he's arrested. The movement begins to just dissipate. A lot of other folks are arrested. Um, and, you know, at this time, Alberto Fujimori, who'd been elected as a complete outsider, had been elected into office in 1990, um, partly because your average Peruvian was fed up with the traditional, what they called at that time, the traditional political parties, not really responding both to the crisis of political violence, but also to the very real economic crisis. I mean, I was in Peru in the late 80s, and, you know, the economy was fairly stable, 86, 87, and then it started to go into a tailspin. In 1989, the inflation rate was something like 7,000%. So for people who don't, for the majority of the population in Peru who are poor or struggling to survive on sort of working class incomes, Hyperinflation is bad, but hyperinflation is devastating. So hunger went up, poverty rates went up. Um, so they were tired of the, the failure of the parties to really address these twin problems of political violence and economic collapse. And so that's how this outsider, Fujimori, became president. Uh, he really didn't have a political party and the armed forces in essence became his political party. And so he basically created a, 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 an alliance with the Peruvian armed forces, giving them complete power over the counterinsurgency um, and using the Shining Path really to consolidate his power. So once Guzman was arrested in 92, in April, in, uh, sorry, in September of 92, that could have been an opportunity for Peru to rebuild its democracy, to strengthen human rights, to achieve some kind of reconciliation, right? Instead, Fujimori used that moment to consolidate his power. He carried out a coup earlier that year 
shutting down Congress, eliminating the Constitution, was very criticized for and was ultimately forced to convene a new Constitution. Sorry, a new Congress that then wrote a new Constitution. And to um, clarify, this is the, the famous or infamous self-coup. Self-coup, the autogolpe, correct. Uh, which other Latin American leaders are following to one or another degree right now quite successfully, such as Bukele and El Salvador that maybe we can talk about later. Um, uh, and that basically means to kind of uh, dismantle all the other branches of power in the government that theoretically would be a counterweight to the executive. Correct. Key to a, a liberal democracy is separation of powers. And if you have an executive that controls the legislature, that controls the judiciary um, with the backing of the armed forces, even if there are elections, even if there are the trappings of democracy, well, we no longer have democracy. And especially if human rights are being violated in a systematic way, which is what happened in Peru. So the, the, the Fujimori government began using the fear of terrorism, the fear of shining path um, as a way to discredit any opposition to his uh, authoritarian rule, right? And so rather than return Peru to democracy, rebuild the country, what he did was consolidate authoritarian rule. And so for the next almost decade, Peru endured rather, than, you know, again, rather than enjoy the end of the shining path, insurgency and rebuild, they had to suffer several more years of repression, of fear, of um, uh, insecurity. Uh, until the end of the uh, end of the '90s, you begin to see uh, sort of the return of civil society, rising protests against Fujimori's grab for a third term in office. One of the reasons he had to rewrite the 1979 Constitution, of course, was because it did not allow for consecutive reelection, and he wanted another term in office. So, of course, one of the first things in that new Constitution was. Um, uh, consecutive re-election. So he ran for a second term in 95 and obviously he won. Uh, and then he wanted to run again in 2000. Um, and he, his, the Congress wrote a sort of, uh, they called it the, <laughs> you can see the Orwellian language here. They called it the lay, the law of authentic interpretation of the constitution. Right? The constitutional court had said, no, you cannot run for a third term. The constitution is very clear. It allows you one uh, constitutional re-election. Uh, and, and so what Fujimori did was he fired the constitutional court judges. Uh, and then his Congress, which was controlled by his party, wrote this law, this authentic interpretation law, um, which said, oh no, the first term doesn't count because that was under the first, the 1979 constitution. Under the 1993 constitution, he's only been elected one time in 95. So it is, it is okay for him to run for a third term. But so Peruvians started to get uncomfortable with this grab for power, right? Um, but what sealed the deal in terms of the fall of his government was um, the, the, the emergence of these videos showing very clearly um, the regime's corruption. So behind all the authoritarianism was also this massive uh, grand corruption, uh, so that's these, that's what happened in these, in a very, you know, a very quick nutshell in these 20 years. Um, uh, and in the last 20 years, basically Peru has been trying to deal with the legacy of both the Shining Path, uh, war, uh, and its rending of, of social, uh, of communities and of society, 
and sort of the repressive authoritarian legacy and legacies of fear of the Fujimori dictatorship. Listeners can't see, but I'm smiling right now. And it's because, I mean, anybody who has paid close attention to the recent elections in Peru will know that, you know, this history is not ancient. It's not something distant. It is very alive. And I mean that in a completely literal way with all of these same kind of, uh, you know, Spiro Agnew-like figures of Peruvian politics returning uh, to the present day. Um, so let's, let's rewind, now that our listeners have that context, let's rewind to the beginning of the story. Uh, Sendero Luminoso is reputed to be one of the most violent guerrilla movements kind of the world over. And the conventional narrative of their expansion centers on violence, coercion, indoctrination, and short kind of brute force. I'm not sure you dispute that, but it's certainly not the full story you tell in this book. So why is Sendero able to find fertile ground, at least in certain parts of Peru? How are they able to grow? Sure. Um, So one of the things that I argue in the book is that it's in the interstices of society where people have been forgotten by the state, by political parties, by the tra- traditional, by, by trade unions, maybe by the traditional uh, organizations that or- that organize and structure society, these don't exist in these parts of uh, Peru. And Shining Path is able to enter into those areas and um, build on uh, longstanding resentment, feelings of abandonment, feelings of marginalization. Um, some people confuse Shining Path with sort of a racially, you know, a racial resentment movement because they are based in the Andes where, you know, most people are Quechua speakers. And certainly that was their social base for many years. But Shining Path never really vindicated any indigenous uh, identity or uh, the return of the Inca, which has been a long sort of myth in Peruvian society for, you know, from the time of the conquest, from the time of the, 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 the quartering of uh, indigenous rebel, rebel uh, Tupac Amaru, who uh, rebelled against the Spanish colony in the 1780s. Um, they weren't that. They were organized strictly along class lines, along Marxist principles. Um, but they did try to build alliances and respond to local needs in communities across the country you know in the, in the in the early years in the 80s primarily in the andes region and especially the more indigenous and poorest parts of the country like i said that had been really abandoned by the state and as the 80s moves on and as the economic crisis grows as the state retracts its presence further from society because of the economic crisis, because of the administrative disarray that it falls into, this just creates more space for Shining Path to expand and grow. And what you do see is that there are areas where, initially anyway, where there is the presence of the left or the presence of the Catholic Church or vibrant NGOs and social movements, there's uh, resistance to Shining Path. Right. Not, you know, there's a, there is resistance uh, in in rural areas and in urban areas. But again, as the crisis deepens in Peru, that ability to resist begins to weaken. And the, the, the case study that I focused on really intensively was an urban shanty. town. Shanty town is sort of a 
a small word for what this community is. It's it's its name is Villa El Salvador, and it started off as a land invasion. And I and think I think you mentioned it had almost a million people at the time. Am I? Yeah. Yeah, okay. uh, no, uh, about three hundred and fifty thousand people. Okay, so I was off by an order of magnitude, but still very large. Very large. They're very, very large. Um, and that, now it's a it's a, a municipal district, but it started mm-hmm. out literally as a land invasion in the early nineteen seventies. Um, very poor community. I lived there in the mid eighties, um, and there was you know there was some sh- inklings of Shining Path presence at that time, but not very significant, at least not to the naked eye. Right. But as the economic crisis, as the crisis of politics expanded and deepened into the later part of the 1980s, Shining Pass' ability to establish a foothold in, in Via El Salvador and places like it begins to expand. Um, and it's ironic because Shining, uh, because Via El Salvador really was um, sort of a, pro- a trophy in the prize case of the united left, this democratically organized coalition of left-wing parties that, for the most part, repudiated the shining path. There was some ambiguity, especially in the early 1980s. There was the sense that we are all, you know, cousins of the left. We all invoke Mariatki, the Marxist, the Peruvian thinker I mentioned earlier. Our common enemy is the state. But as shining path's true nature, its dogmatism, it's 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 hierarchical uh, organization, its dogmatism, and its unflinching willingness to utilize violence became evident, the legal left become, you know, overall becomes much more clear in its repudiation of Shining Path. Again, there is some ambiguity among some sectors of the left. There's no doubt about that. But they are two very different. I mean, the, the, the United Left participates in elections. They participated in the Constituent Assembly in 1978. They participated in the elections in 1980. They won the mayorship of Lima in 1983. From 1983 to 1986, Lima was governed, you know, the, the capital of the country, with... Um, at the time, probably around 8 million people, now it's much bigger, um, was governed by a socialist. I think that was the first time a major Latin American metropolis was governed by, a, you know, a self-professed Marxist. Um, so the, di- the difference between these two organizations is very important to the story. Um, and Shining, uh, Shining Path focused on places like Villa El Salvador precisely because of that. Because at a certain point, certainly their main enemy was the state and the state apparatus. So government bureaucrats, mayors, governors, members of Congress, the the police, the military, those were typical targets of Shining Path attacks and and, and assassination uh, 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 campaigns, right? They engaged in extrajudicial executions of many government functionaries. But they also began to define the United Left as an enemy, what one might white conceive in another context of these forces coming together and you know creating a broad-based revolution, which is the only way revolutions ever win if they're multi-class and very broad-based. That we know through the study of revolutions around the world. Peru was going through the very opposite of that. It was very sectarian, very, very narrow base. Um and so Villa El Salvador for Shining Path was a prize to be won, to demonstrate its power, its capacity to mobilize and organize and win adherence in different parts of the country, where previously uh, it was believed it would not be able to. 
And there are other um, scholars who worked more in the Andes, especially in the 80s and the early years of Shining Path's emergence, um, that document similar things that I document in the urban areas about how Shining Path, you know, identifies local conflicts, sort of works those local contradictions to win support to, you know, if there's a conflict over a local um, landowner or a local merchant or the local owner of the only store for, you know, 300 miles, um, someone who's really hated or reviled um, for their bad practices or whatever, um, that, that might win it some adherence or they might, you know, provide security. They might provide, there's certain things that people want, Just especially to- as the state recedes, as the state recedes and there's nothing, there's no, there's no justice, there's no order, there's increasing insecurity. Shining Path becomes a force for security. I mean, very, again, very hierarchical, not democratic at all. Um, and oftentimes in using um, vigilante style violence uh, to impose uh punishment, quote unquote. So I, I, I interviewed people in four shanty towns in Lima, including Villa Salvador, but three others where Shining Path had presumably a, a, a strong presence. Uh, and things that people would say, and this was in the early 90s, early 90s, yeah, early 90s and when I was doing my field research for my PhD. Um, uh, and people would say to me, uh, yeah, they you know, there was this, you know, store owner and she was this in the context of hyperinflation when people's incomes are really stretched to the max. This um, land, this store person, this owner of this store was overcharging for oil or for rice. And she was hoarding uh, products so, so that as, you know, if the inflation numbers went up, she could raise her prices further. So Shining Path took care took care of her, meaning they warned her. For our listeners, there were air quotes there. <laughs> yeah, and the air quotes, that's all right. Sorry, I forgot this is, uh, this is not a video. Um, uh, warned uh, uh, her, and then if after one or two warnings she didn't recapacitate, then they would assassinate this person. And frankly, um, many people did not have a problem with that because there was this context of profound insecurity, both, both physical insecurity and, um, and economic insecurity. Oh, another thing that they did a lot was, um, punish, uh, drug abusers and local drug traffickers. Local communities do not like having drug traffickers on their corners, right? And so um, one of the things, or drug dealers, I guess would be more the appropriate term. Um, and that was another uh, target of Shining Path, uh, vigilant, this vigilante style justice. Uh, another one, uh, in, in, in a way I find very, um, you know, uncomfortable to talk about was um, uh, uh, attack, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, justice for uh, victims of spousal abuse. Uh, or infidelity. They would even, you know, if a, if a man was known as a womanizer or, you know, being unfaithful to his wife or abusing his wife, they might intervene. So this very, very local, you know, granular level of conflict, they were there kind of overseeing what's going on and how they could intervene in a way that made people like, okay, we're not going to, maybe we don't join them. We don't want to be part of this, but 
nor are we going to inform on them. Because that there's like these different, le- le- one of the things that other authors and I talk about in my book is different levels of support for an organization like Shining Path. There are the true believers. There are the people who are militants who believe in the ideology and the mission. They sign the, what for Guzman, you, to be a member of the Shining Path, you had to sign an oath of, of obedience to Abimael Guzman. You basically were signing your life away. Uh, Gustavo Gorriti, the famous Peruvian journalist, in his book about the early years of Shining Path, writes about this quite brilliantly. Um, I highly recommend his book. It's translated in Spanish. It's published by UNC Press. Um, I'm angry. I just, this is apropos of nothing, but I just had my one credit for my Audible account and I was sampled that book, Garidi's book, and I sampled another book and I ultimately chose the other book. But my next credit will go to Garidi's book. Because it's a fantastic, (laughs) it's a fantastic book. And, And he has long passages of Shining Path you know, Guzman's discourses and their writings. So you really get to understand the very, really the totalitarian nature of their ideology. I mean, they would say things like we have, there are, the party has a thousand eyes and a thousand ears. And in the regions where they were present, it seemed to be true. And that generated both terror and a certain degree of, um, conformity, if you know what I mean. Um, so again, what I, what I was getting to a moment ago is this idea of different levels of acceptance. So there's the true, you know, the, the true militants, the one who believe deeply in the ideology and the mission of the Shining Path. I don't think all people who joined the Shining Path had that level of commitment. There's this other book by uh, uh, this um, person named Lurgio Gavilan Sanchez, and it's also been translated into English. It's called "When Rains, Rains Become Flood Became Floods," and he'd been he'd been he'd joined the Shining Path as a young man as a young really he was a child soldier. He was like I don't know, fourteen years old or something because his brother had joined the Shining Path. He didn't really the sense you get from the book is that he didn't really buy into the whole ideology. He joined it because his brother was in it. So I don't believe that all militants had, were true believers, and I think Lurgio's story conveys that very well. Um, then you have the next level of um, you know, people who sort of think that what they're doing is good and there's sort of this passive level of acceptance, um, but not they're not active members. So this passive acceptance is really important because it allows Shining Path to operate in large zones of the country without fear of being discovered. I mean, you, you have to understand that they began in 1980 Guzman was not arrested until 1992, and it wasn't until 1990 that they even knew who the key members of the top leadership were, and that was because the the, the police, the special forces uh, operation, raided uh, Shining Path safe house, and in that safe house they discovered a trove of documents and videos, and in that video they were like they were this was the famous video where. The, the leaders of the Shining Path are dancing the Zorba, the Greek. They're like having a party. And maybe it's actually a more, maybe they're actually mourning the death of Abimael Guzman's first wife. It's not really a party. It's a, it's a more like a memorial service and they're dancing the Zorba, the Greek. But that is how the intelligence, uh, 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 the police intelligence operations begin to identify the top leadership of the Shining Path. Right. So, their structure, their hierarchical structure, and this passive 
support or acceptance of their uh, of this organization in different parts of the country is what allowed it to expand so extensively throughout the territory. You know, by the late 80s, Shining Path was active in 21 out of 24 departments in the country. Um, and there was real fear in 91, 92, that they were close to taking power. I mean, the flip side of that, of course, is the failure of the Peruvian state to respond this in an efficacious way. Be- this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is going to be my next question. So I'm going to yeah. steal the reins from you just for one yes, second here. Um, <laughs> you've given us a whole bunch that we could dive into, but we, yes, really should get to the other half of this story. So if, you know, one half of the success of Sendero comes from their own ability to um, gain the at the very least, passive acceptance of a decent proportion of uh, Peruvians, even in the major cities. Uh, the other half of the story of their growth is really about uh, the ineptitude of the Peruvian court. Um, yeah, I wrote this down. They're kind of slow to wrath. And then when they actually step into the fray, they, they swing at Sendero with all kind of the tact and blind destructiveness of the Hulk. Um, so <laughs> that's a simple good. question. Why is it so hard for the Peruvian government in I guess I'll give you the hint here. I'm thinking about civil military relations. Why is it so hard for them to wage an effective um, counteroffensive against Sendero for so long? Right. Um, so I think initially the answer is what I mentioned a moment ago, that when they emerge in 1980, the new president, Fernando Belaun de Terry, himself had been kicked out of office by the military. So he's very reticent to bring the military in. And he sort of has this, you know, this idea that it's really just, you know, a bunch of, a band of thieves, a band of, you know, banditos, um, nothing to take too seriously. uh, And uh, sends in the special police forces to deal with them. Of course, the, those police forces act in you know in very in, very you know indiscriminate violence essentially, beginning a phase of very intense state violence in response to the Shining Path. And by the end of '82, this this fails. Shining Path is beginning to expand; they're beginning to grow, and people are starting to take them a little bit more seriously. So that's the point at which Belaunde sends in the military. But like. In most places, the military is trained to fight external wars. So they go in, like you say, with, you know, a Hulk-like attitude. And they, you know, they um, essentially act like an occupying force, right? And we see this in many civil conflicts. And this is heightened by the racial and class differences that are so uh, marked in Peruvian society. Most of the recruits and definitely the... uh, uh, the ranking officials in the Peruvian army and the Marines who are sent into rural highlands of Peru to combat the Shining Path are white or or mixed race uh, from Lima. And there's just sort of this 
historic disdain for indigenous rural Peruvians. And so this is like, it's like a powder keg, right? And so they go in there and literally they begin to suspect anyone in Ayacucho, any indigenous person, any student from Ayacucho of being a Shining Path member. Um, and they have zero intelligence on this organization. They, they lost crucial time in the early years as Shining Path was growing. If they had been, you know, tracking this organization and building intelligence, they might have known more about this organization as it was trying to expand and been able to stop it. Instead, they were just they were just attacking blindly, you know, massacring innocent civilians in rural areas throughout the region, alienating people, which oftentimes led people, right, to join the Shining Paths ranks because their community had just been wiped out by the military. Um, and so if you look at the if you look at the numbers of violence, the there's a peak in 83 and 84, 85 of state violence that rep- is represented by this strategy of just blind attacks, massacres, mass cases of forced disappearance where they'll they'll take someone um uh, off the streets or from their home, they're acute, they believe that this person is a member of Shining Path, and then they will deny having any knowledge of that person's whereabouts, and then that person is never seen or heard from again. And you know, when I was do, working in human rights and then doing my dissertation work in Peru, the number that people talked about that human rights organizations had been able to document was four thousand victims of forced disappearance, pretty much all by the state. Now we know that the number is more than twenty-one thousand people were the victims of forced disappearance. And I, you know, I've sat in courtrooms listening to I, what I, well, part of the research that I've done in the last several years has been focused on documenting uh, efforts to hold those responsible for human rights abuses criminally responsible in local, in domestic courts of law. So I've sat in different courtrooms for these kinds of trials and proof. The Fujimori trial being the first one that I ever sat in on and without a doubt the most significant just because he's, the former president, but I also, I sat in one, it was um, <clears throat> called the Cabitos uh, case. Cabitos was the name of the military base in Ayacucho, in the capital city of Ayacucho, Huamanga, where the, um, the military high command for Ayacucho was based. They had been given total control, or total administrative and political control over the region by the president of the republic. So basically, it was like a mini- military dictatorship within the context of Peruvian democracy. The military controlled everything. There was a curfew. You'd be in your house by 6 p.m. I, and I actually went to Ayacucho in 1987, probably not the smartest thing I ever did, but I was young mm-hmm. and believed in my omnipotence and, you know, all those things that we do when we're young. Um, uh, um, and this, this, this trial was amazing because there were individuals who testified who had been arrested either in their homes, in their schools, in their neighborhoods, because the military believed them to be members of the Shining Path. They were brutally tortured. They each recounted the tortures that they endured, or in the case of the women, the sexual violence they endured while at the Capitos military prison. But they were let free because at some point, the military's like, hey, yeah, this guy's got nothing. Let him go or let her go. 
which is really astonishing. One, one, one young man recounted this. I have to tell this story. He recounted the story of, he was at the time he was maybe 15 or 16 years old. He was a student and students because Guzman was a professor was recruiting from the Wamanga university university and high school students were highly suspect in the eyes of the army. So this kid was picked up for whatever reason. They Maybe they just thought he was a student. I don't know exactly what their presumed evidence was. So they bring him in. They bring him into the Gabitas military base. He literally stood in front of the judge and showed. He put his hands behind his back and showed how they hung him by the ceiling with his hands behind his back for hours on end and beat his stomach, his legs, um, while he was in that dangling position um, other, he, he related, uh, you know, electrocution, uh, other forms of torture. And then he described at one point they load him, he, he's, he's blindfolded and they load him and around 10 or 12 other men onto a truck of some kind. And they bring them out to the countryside, uh, and they stand them over at the edge of a, at the edge, edge of a cliff. This is the Andes mountain, right? So they're at the edge of a cliff. And so he has his eye, this blind blindfold on and he can sort of see like his feet. So he can see that there's some, you know, people standing next to him. He can see their feet. He can't see much more. And all of a sudden he starts hearing shots and he sees one of the per- persons standing next to him crumple to the ground. And he's convinced that he's about to die. Only they don't shoot him. They allow, they shoot, you know, maybe half of the people there and the other half they bring back onto the bus and they bring them back to the Capitismo. And eventually he's allowed to go home. But imagine the level of impunity the military thought they had at that point. Someone who experienced them that, they let them go and expected they wouldn't ever talk about it, I suppose. And eventually the, the several, a handful of military officials were eventually convicted for the uh, torture, extrajudicial execution, and forced disappearance of, you know, dozens of Peruvians like this uh, young man whose story I'm, I'm recounting to you. Um, This was just a couple years ago. Um, So that's what happened in the early eighties. It was just very indiscriminate, very brutal, kind of blind, terror. And I I title a chapter of my book in which I describe this as terror versus terror. We're going to meet the shining path terror with an equal or superior amount of terror, and that will bring an end to everything. But it didn't, and it almost never does. And it's striking to me because there are manuals about this. There is counterinsurgency doctrine about this that the Peruvian military certainly could have, um, you know, referred to, but inevitably didn't until. Many years later, it's not until the end of the 90s. And there's a quote, I think I have it at the beginning of one of the chapters in my book. I quote a general and says, it's not so much the shining path as winning the war because they're not really that popular, right? Uh, that's my addition. He says, it's not the shining path as winning the war. It's that we are losing the war. We have no strategy. We don't know who the leaders are. We have no strategy to win this thing. We're just randomly killing people. And he even says, we're going to go into community and if there's 60 people in the community, we're going to kill them all. And maybe only three of them were Shining Path, but that's the way it goes. So it's just this sort of Vietnam syndrome. We don't know who they are, so we're just going to sort of kill everybody. And it's true. That's one of the, you know, one of the advantages that guerrilla organizations have in wars like this is that they are not necessarily dressed like guerrilla fighters. So they are not, their whole idea is the Maoist idea of um, 
becoming the fish and swimming in the ocean, meaning they become like the peasants or the rural uh, shantytown dwellers, and they are indistinguishable from those populations. So the military actually has a difficult time identifying them, right? Um, so maybe I'll stop there because I'm sure I'm, I could just keep going on and on and on. I'll let you ask me a question. It's, it's fantastic. Well, I guess um, for my next question, we should get to kind of the coda of the conflict, at least in um, the direct military terms. So how is this conflict brought to an end? And as you kind of actually teased a little bit earlier in our discussion, um, Sendero was actually peaking in terms of strength in the late 80s, early 90s. You know, there's that um, congressional testimony you referenced in the United States where there are fears articulated of, you know, an imminent, imminent kind of communist takeover in a major Latin American country. And then all of a sudden, the organization kind of disappears. So what happens? Because, of course, that myth of the defeat of Sendero is key to the political legacy of not just Fujimori, but, I mean, I guess his family. Uh, his daughter has now run for president four times, if I got that right. And uh, the Three. political right in general. Three times, sorry. Uh, the political right in general in Peru. So kind of what happens? What's the true story of the um, kind of rapid uh, downfall of Sendero in the early 90s? Yeah. This, it's really quite a fascinating story because if you hear Fujimori or his daughter Keiko Fujimori tell the story, what they will say is that their self-coup and Fujimori's overall economic reforms, neoliberal economic reforms, are what saved Peru and helped defeat Shining Path, right? He takes credit for um, the, 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 the military crackdown that that followed upon the uh, April 5 self-coup is what he claims is responsible for the defeat of Shining Path. I sat and listened to him say that the first day of his trial. That's exactly what his discourse was all about. Um, and his supporters continue to repeat that story. In fact, um, Fujimori was in the jungle fishing the day that Guzman was arrested. And he had no idea that this was happening. And the reason is a, a p- police, a special police unit, anti-terrorist unit had been for a couple of years working very diligently using the tried and true tactics of the police to combat a criminal organization, which is information, intelligence gathering. We need to know who the leaders of this organization are in order to defeat them because it's such a hierarchical organization, the theory was. If we capture the head of the organization, the body is just going to fall. And that's exactly what happened. So this police unit called the Hain, uh, G-E-I-N, um, which I forget what that stands for, but anyway, um, <laughs> they literally, like, so let's say, I always tell this to my students. This is my, my anecdote for my students. Um, let's say in 1987, the police or the military suspect me of being a member of Shining Path. What they're going to do is they're going to arrest me. They're going to torture me because I'm a woman. They'll probably rape me. And then they're either going to kill me or they're going to disappear me. That's what they're going to do. In 1990 and 91, they're not going to do that. They're going to follow me. They're going to try to figure out who I am reporting to, what I am up to, who else am I associating with so that they can build 
a better understanding of this organization. And by doing this, you know, Shining Path was organized in a cell-like structure. So it was like the cells and no one in any cell knew any, only one person knew the person above them. And that is how it went all the way up to the top, which is how Guzman and his other top lieutenants had been safe for so long. Right. Um, so by following, and, and the story of how they actually captured him is a brilliant one, right? He's being, he's hiding out in Lima in a sort of well-off residential district in Lima. Which is, um, by the way, amazing. I mean, on almost on the scale of maybe not quite Bin Laden being in a boat of that, but <laughs> I mean. It's an amazing story. So they start, they start following this shining path, this person they suspect of being a top shining path leader. Carlos Inchaustegui is his name, I'm pretty sure. Um, and they start tracking him and his wife. His wife is a upper middle class uh, ballerina named Marizo Garrido Leca. Very beautiful, thin. She's a ballerina. She's gorgeous. Um, and they start following her. They start following him. They start going through their trash. They have, you know, a guy set up across the street watching their comings and goings. And they, they start to notice things, right? Like, they're buying a lot more bread for breakfast than for just two people. And she's like this tiny little thing, right? And he's actually a tall, very thin man also. Um, they notice it in the garbage. There's like, there's like empty boxes of Winston cigarettes. And Guzman is known to smoke Winston cigarettes. They find empty boxes of um, psoriasis medicine. Guzman is known to suffer from psoriasis. And so it's some, oh, they, they find her, they watch her buying like a pair of extra large, you know, uh, thermal underwear, extra large. So they start putting two and some, somebody is in there. Somebody big is in there. So one night they close in without telling the army, without telling, you know, um, uh, Fujimori, which I believe is the reason Abimel Guzman is alive today. Or he, he, sorry, he just died a week ago. But he was captured alive without the firing of a single shot. And of course, they didn't put up any resistance either. I mean, they were literally in this house on, I don't know if they were, if there were no weapons in the house, but they, they put up no resistance. Guzman actually said to, to the head of the operation, Ketim Vidal, oh, I guess it was my turn to lose. That's what he says. So it's literally this intelligence operation that results in the capture of Guzman. That is the result of, you know, several painstaking years of intelligence gathering uh, and, 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 and surveillance. But then Fujimori and the military try to take, they're actually really upset. Montesinos, who is Fujimori's chief security advisor, is a former army, army captain who'd been arrested and prosecuted actually and, and jailed for selling secrets to the CIA during that military government in the 70s that I talked about earlier. He was Fujimori's Mr. Fix-It guy. He's the one who helped the Fujimori, Fujimori develop this close coalition alliance with the military. Um, he was, in theory, in charge of counterinsurgency operations. Um, he was the de facto head of the National Intelligence Service. He wanted to claim the victory. So th there was like this jockeying for power. They brought uh, um, Guzman over to the scene uh, uh, the office, the National Intelligence Service offices, and claimed that they were the ones res ultimately responsible for Guzman's arrest. Ketim Vidal was fired. The police unit, the Hain, was dismantled. 
Um, and that's where you begin to see the construction of this narrative that Fujimori and the military and their hard, you know, their their iron their iron hand tactics or their heavy handed tactics are responsible for the defeat of the Shining Path. But that's not the the truth of it at all. And you'll, so, and you'll, you'll hear Keiko Fujimori repeat that story time and again. You know, she'll like in the campaign trail, she'll say, I'm going to be as tough on um, criminals as my father was on terrorists. You know, I mean, there certainly is, you know, it is important to recognize that Fujimori was some things that he did, I think, did contribute to the quick demise of Shining Path after the Guzman arrest, like the repentance laws that allowed members of the Shining Path to come in, give up information, and then they would either get a reduced sentence or maybe no sentence at all. Though that often resulted in in abuses of power because um, a lot of times they would give fake names. And so innocent people would get arrested. They wouldn't give the names of the actual Shining Path militants, but of innocent people. So there was a lot of abuse in that law. But it was seen as one. I do think that did play a role in the ultimate disarticulation of of Shining Path post Guzman's arrest. I want to close. This has been a fantastic interview. Unfortunately, there's been a bunch of questions I haven't been able to answer, but I, I want to close with uh, two more. Um, so first, I want to bring us back uh, to the present, finally. And I don't actually know if we've said this explicitly on podcasts, at least, but the book was published in, in 2006. And I invited you on earlier uh, this summer, I think as the elect, no, shortly after the Peruvian elections had taken place because um, I was just, I had actually gone to Peru to cover the elections and, you know, everybody who talks to you talks to you about the history in Peru and you would ask them who they're voting for and they, they would tell you, if you know history, you would know why I'm voting for this candidate. But then half would be voting for one, half would be voting for the other and they would have completely diametrically opposed interpretations yeah. of history, which is fascinating. Um, so for this one, I don't really have a question. I kind of just wanted to serve up red meat to a T-Rex. Um, but I would love to ask for kind of your thoughts on kind of how history filtered into the recent elections. And maybe even if uh, you see anything differently that you wrote in the book, uh, you know, roughly feels 15 years ago, based on the course of events in Peru since then. Yeah, so it's interesting when I when I when I wrote the Spanish version of the book, the second edition, I included a chapter on the prosecution and conviction of Alberto Fujimori for gross violations of human rights during his this 10-year period that he was in office. Um, he was also convicted on several counts of corruption. Um, and I think a lot of people, myself perhaps included, um, believed that this was the end of the Fujimori project, you know, how do you come back after being convicted uh, of such heinous crimes and of corrupt, massive corruption? And if you look at any list, you know, the top 10 most corrupt people in the world, Fujimori is almost always on one of those lists, it's like number seven or something after Sukarto and Fernando Mark Marcos, whatever. Um, <clears throat> only his daughter, Keiko Fujimori, had another idea. Right. She, I think initially she, her foray into politics, she, she ran for Congress in 2006 when Fujimori was, was in detention in Chile awaiting the outcome of the Peruvian state's extradition request. She ran for office and she's elected. She actually was the most voted member of Congress 
in 2006. And so she and the remnants of the Fujimori project, which has been sort of in the desert for all these years, are like, huh, maybe we can rebuild this thing. And that's what she sets out to do. I think her motivation initially, especially after her father, her father is convicted in 2009, I think her sole motivation was to get her father out of jail. I think she wanted to, she ran for president for the first time in 2011, the undisputed leader of Fujimorismo, right? Um, to get her dad out of power, out of jail. She never recognized the legality of the of the political uh, of the trial against her. Claimed that it was a political farce, you know, organized by Fujimori's enemies to remove him because he was so popular, supposedly, et cetera, et cetera. Um, she ultimately loses those elections uh, quite substantially, but um, she doesn't lose her taste for power. And I think after that, she starts to want to be present not only to get her father out of power. She now sees herself as someone who can build a movement that can potentially take power. And that's very enticing to her. And so she becomes a full-blown politician, not just to save her poppy, but to rule the country. So she runs two more times and ultimately both in the 2016 and this most recent election, she loses both by an extremely narrow margin. And my belief in both instances, the reason that she loses is because of the legacy of her father. Now, it's one of these, it's like a double-edged sword because it's the legacy of her father that makes her so popular among a not insignificant percentage of the Peruvian population. There are still Peruvians who will tell you that Fujimori was the best president Peru ever had. And he's the father of Peruvian democracy, or the discourse that that Keiko herself has. Um, but there's also about half of the population who are diehard anti-Fujimoristas. And it's this anti-Fujimori movement that has really defined the last 15 years of political life in Peru. And you're starting to hear the right. It's very interesting. I think the right has finally figured this out because in this most recent election, you start to hear the right very explicitly criticize and denounce the anti-Fujimorismo as, you know, an invention of George Soros or as, um, you know, uh, connected to international communism or, or whatnot. Um but it's really this, it's, it's human rights people, it's the victims of the Fujimori government, but it's also students and professionals who understand the nature of the authoritarian government that he put in place in the 90s and how he abused power, how he manipulated the fear of the shining path among the population to hold on to power and to con- consolidate his power, how he allowed Montesinos, uh, a convicted felon, to accrue so much power that they were, I mean, they were engaged in drug trafficking and arms trafficking. I mean, one of the things that, I mean, you know, throughout the, the Fujimori government, it's important to say this, the CIA, even though the U.S. government criticized the Fujimori regime on many, at many moments over the coup, for example, over its human rights record, the CIA was still sending money to Montesinos. But when they discovered that Montesinos was selling weapons to the FARC in exchange for cocaine, that was when the CIA was like, oh, yeah, this is not good for us. And they cut him off. And this contributes to the demise. It's one of the contributing factors. It's not the main, but it is an important factor. 
Um, and after that, uh, Montesinos flees the country. And then shortly after that, so does Fujimori. Yeah. Um, By the way, so that whole story of his flight, we're, we don't have time for that today, frankly, but I recommend all of our listeners go look up. I've incredible. seen documentaries, at least in Spanish. There's got to be one in English, um, but it's a fantastic story. Um, I'm not sure if I cut you off there. Uh, did you have a concluding thought? Otherwise, I'll, I'll set you up for the last question here. Well, um, no, go, go ahead. Set me up. I don't remember. If I had a thought, I don't remember what it was. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so I want to take us away from Peru for the very last question here. And this is, I admit, going to be a hard question given um, it's been you know more than a decade since you wrote, wrote the book. But... Um, some of the arguments you make draw on more general political science scholarship on democracy, civil society, state building, et cetera. Um, and I'm curious, you know, while this is, um, I guess you could call it a case study, but, you know, you're looking at one case the entire time. Do you have any tentative thoughts about what uh, the civil conflict in Peru in the 80s and early 90s tells us about political theory or democracy kind of more generally or elsewhere in the world? Yeah, I do. I think um, one very powerful inspiration for my thinking about what what I was seeing and observing in Peru was by political philosopher John Keane, who wrote this wonderful book. Um, and he says, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing him here, he says, state power without obstacles, by which he means sort of robust, democratic, uh, nonviolent civil society, is always hazardous, a license for despotism. And that was exactly what I was seeing in Peru. There was, when I first went to Peru in 1986, there was still a vibrant civil society, even as the Shining Path War at that point was raging, mostly in the rural Andes. There was still in rural Peru and in Lima and in other provincial uh, uh, departments, there was a vibrant civil society. There were trade unions, there were local uh, social movements, there were women's movements, there were neighborhood movements, there were peasant federations, there were rondas campesinas, these peasant defense patrols in the north where, where the current president hails from, President Pedro Castillo. <clears throat> And it was this combination of political violence, both by the state and by the Shining Path, that pressured and ultimately helped disarticulate civil society alongside the brutality of the economic collapse, right? And so that's why the, the subtitle of the book is Silencing Civil Society. Civil society is, it's, it's aplastado, it's, it's flattened out. So those social obstacles to state power, once Fujimori takes power and he is bent on rebuilding, but rebuilding in an authoritarian way. He's not rebuilding a democratic state. He's not interested in rebuilding democracy. He's interested in rebuilding a system based on total control, a despotism, right? That also allows him to engage in massive corruption. And I think one thing at that time, I and other political theorists didn't think about as much, I think we're thinking about it now much more clearly, is the profound connection between authoritarianism and corruption. And just to give you a slight example from another part of the world, for years, nobody believed that General Augusto Pinochet, the 17-year-long dictator of Chile, was corrupt. In fact, he quite, you know, he always um, prided himself on being, you know, I'm not corrupt on the end. I'm fighting corruption and, and my regime is, you know, 
rebuilding, you know, a, a Chile for the future, blah, blah, blah. And most people had that view of him until years later, the bank accounts were discovered here in the United States, revealing his involvement in massive corruption. So I think the connection between authoritarianism, where there is no transparency, there's no free press or limited free press, limited free speech, that's a perfect storm for corruption to flourish and thrive. And so one of the reasons democracy is so important, I mean, obviously it's because we want sovereignty. We want to be in, we want to vote for our leaders. We want to have a say in how we're governed, but we also need the transparency that democracy avails to us to make sure that those in power don't abuse those power for their private personal ends and to the detriment of all of society. And we're seeing this throughout Latin America today and in other parts of the world as well. And maybe even there's a little bit of that here as well. That is the perfectly poetic ending to our discussion today. I had a blast. Um, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, it was really nice to be here. Thank you so much for, for talking with me about, about the book. I, I really do appreciate it. I also had a great time. Awesome.